Have you ever heard of BTK, the Carr Brothers Massacre, the Clutter Family, or the Poet? These are just a few well-known crimes in Kansas, but there are so many more that have been forgotten. Like my friend and neighbor, Krista Martin, who was murdered on October 1st of 1989, and so many more cases that are still sitting on the shelves waiting to be solved. Hopefully, with your help, we will be able to find the answers to these cases. Join us again at Crime Scene and Cupcakes on your streaming devices, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. This podcast covers true crime cases that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hello, everyone. Um, This is Malison Mocktails, and I'm your host, Katie. And I'm your co-host, Emily. (laughs) And this is episode 15. Woo! And if you're new here, just to give you a little bit of info about the podcast, every week, Emily and I talk about a case that typically takes place before 1973. So we tend to focus on cases that are at least 50 years or older. And at the end of every episode, we share with you a mocktail recipe just to help break up the crazy and depressing nature of these cases. So if that's your thing, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating and a review. If you have listened to us before, we would really appreciate that. You can do that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those places. And we are on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, TikTok. And as of this recording, which is on Sunday, the 6th of November, we have 299 Instagram followers. And in one of our previous episodes, we shared with our listeners that when we reach 300 followers, we will launch our very first giveaway. So if you like us and want to give us a follow, help us reach that, that 300 mark, that'd be amazing. And what's the giveaway, Katie? (laughs) What are we giving away? So we're giving away a copy of a book called Mocktail Party. And it is a really cute book. It's, um, I think it's got like 75 plant-based alcohol-free recipes. And um, it is written by Carrie Benson and Diana LaCalzi, I believe is her last name. And they've been gracious enough to give us a book to give away so and again we we mentioned it when we first um when katie first came up with the giveaway um we mentioned how lovely both of these ladies are um 
So you would expect a book author not to really, you know, get back to you quickly. But um, Katie sent off the email to them and they got back to Katie within like 48 hours. And they seemed kind of excited about this too. So we're, we really like them. We really like their books. Um, they have another one that's super cute. Um, so we, we're, we're really excited. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. I think it'll be a really good giveaway. And I really hope that whoever wins loves the book as much as we do. All right. So let's get into the episode here. So I'm going to tell you about the failed kidnapping and subsequent murder of Adolf Coors III. And if you haven't already guessed, this is Coors, as in the famous beer brewery. Oh, wow. And yeah. This case took place in Golden, Colorado, specifically in February of 1960. Wait, did you say Golden, Colorado or Boulder, Colorado? Golden. Golden, oh. like gold. And it's, uh, it's a little bit west of Denver. Okay. Cool. And I did not ever hear about Golden, Colorado. Yeah, me Sorry. neither. Me yeah. neither until this case. So Golden was incorporated into Colorado Territory in 1871. And that was only um, uh, two years earlier, Adolf Coors Sr., so the OG Adolf, arrived from Germany and began his brewery. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty. I, I thought it was really cool. Um, that is I mean, cool. not not the kidnapping, of course, uh, but no. just the like the lineage of the Coors family. Yeah, and until about 1950, the Coors Brewery employed more workers than the town actually had people. So, like people, you know, coming in from probably Denver and surrounding areas. Wow. And most of my sources for this case include newspaper articles. And I found a really interesting book called The Death of an Heir, Adolf Coors III, and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. And it's by Philip Jett. And it has so much information and details about the kidnapping. So I encourage you to read it if you want to learn more about this case specifically. I will link it in the show notes as always. So let's get into this. Adolf Herman Joseph Coors III was born on January 12th of 1915 to Alice May and Adolf Coors Jr. From what I could glean from census records, young Adolf spent most of his youth living with his family in Golden, Colorado, which, like I mentioned, is west of Denver and located at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. He attended Cornell University, which I think was sort of a legacy school for his family. His dad and brother also graduated from there. And I think they both studied, um, I can't remember if it's mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, but um, I think Adolf just studied like basic engineering. So he didn't go... He didn't follow in like that specific footstep, but he went to that same uh, university. And in 1940, Adolf married Mary Grant and they had four kids. And at just age 44, 
Adolf III took over as CEO of the famous Coors Brewing Company. And as an aside, Coors does manufacture a non-alcoholic beer called Coors Edge. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I haven't tried it personally, but just wanted to throw that out there. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the case, the actual case itself. So in the early morning hours of February 9th, 1960, Adolf III began his day like any other, including exercising and tending to his horses. And a little bit before 8 a.m., he finished his coffee, kissed his wife Mary goodbye, and headed to his 1959 white and turquoise travel-all. And a travel-all is like a 1950s version of an SUV. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you, because I was about to ask what (laughs) travel-all. Yeah. And off he went. Now, their family ranch was about 20 minutes or so from the Coors Brewery. Oh, is there an echo? Um, I don't have an echo, but you're a little scratchity. Maybe my volume is up too high. So if I turn my volume down. Maybe. Because I was, as I was talking, I was, it sounded like I was getting an echo from somewhere. Okay. So. Listeners, I'm sorry if there's an echo. We ha- I had this issue the last episode, and so I don't know if it was me or maybe Emily's volume, but we'll we'll figure it out. <laughs> yes. So um, Adolf had to take a different route to the brewery due to some road construction along his normal route, which would have taken him along, I think, Highway 285. And I looked on a map, and now I can't remember where it is, but if you just, like, Google Map. Highway 285. I think it's like up uh, in the mountains somewhere. And little did Adolf know, a stranger had been stalking him for several months, <laughs> meticulously crafting a plan that would net him a tremendous amount of money. On Adolf's way to work, he had to cross what's called Turkey Creek Bridge which was a narrow one-lane bridge. So it was like only wide enough for one car to cross at a time. And as he approached the bridge, he noticed the yellow 1951 Mercury was parked basically like blocking the way with its hood up. Adolf's a nice guy. So he stops and asks from his window if the driver needed help. And the driver responded that he did. So Adolf gets out of the car, leaving the engine running and heads over to where the driver stood. The driver, Joseph Corbett Jr., emerged with a gun and told Adolf to get in the back seat of the car and put on handcuffs and leg irons that were waiting for him. Well, Adolf was not one to just comply. He's like, of course. So he basically tried to overpower Corbett, who did not anticipate any of this and was kind of taken by surprise. And Adolf turned, I think he, they like, I think they, they, they fought and like struggled for the gun and they like slammed into the bridge. And then Adolf, I think, tries to like push off and like run back to his car. And um, Corbett, acting in the heat of the moment, fired his gun twice, striking Adolf. And sadly, these shots were fatal. And Corbett basically just killed his chance at a huge ransom. And yep. subsequently sets off the largest U.S. manhunt 
since the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's infant son about 30 years prior. Wow. Yeah. Now, Adolf was supposed to be at work right about now. I think he was supposed to be, they were um, expecting him around like nine o'clock in the morning. Or I'm sorry, uh, we'll say nine o'clock. It might have been maybe like 8.30 or so. Anyway, okay. so either way, he's supposed, they're, they're expecting him to be at work and he is not there yet. And the secretary is getting really worried. Um, his two brothers that also help run the company are getting worried. So they called Mary, Adolf's wife. Uh, they called local hospitals and other areas of like the Coors company, but no luck. It would be almost two and a half hours before anyone would alert the police to Adolf's deserted car. Oh my God. Which, I mean, I get it. Like it's in a remote part. You know, what, what are you supposed to do? It turns out around 8.04 a.m. that morning, a local veterinarian named Dr. John Palero, who knew Adolf Coors, passed by the bridge and noticed the travel all parked on the bridge. He claimed it appeared to be deserted, but he didn't actually cross the bridge because he was headed in a different direction. And then around 10.20 a.m., a local milkman named Dan Crocker was making his deliveries in that area and came across the travel all on the bridge. And he had to cross the bridge. So he stopped, got out of his car or his like delivery van and approached Adolf's car. He noticed that the motor was still running and the driver's side window was lowered and the radio was on. He looked around and not seeing anybody, he honked the horn to see if he could get the driver's attention. Maybe he stepped off to, you know, do his business or something. Nothing. So he ends up getting into his, his truck and, or I'm sorry, he gets into Adolf's car and he backs it off of the bridge so he could get by. And he turns off Adolf's car once he does this got back into his delivery van and made his way up the road. As he headed back toward the bridge from his delivery, he saw that the car was still where he left it. And following another delivery, he made his way to a local filling station where he called the Colorado State Police to report what he'd seen. And the police managed to make their way out there and they were able to identify the vehicle as belonging to the Coors Brewery and immediately phoned to let them know. And a man named Jack Scanlon, who worked in the traffic division of the Coors Brewery, was alerted, and he was able to ID the car as belonging to Adolf. I imagine that the police, like, gave them the plates or something, and he was able to to verify, like, yes, it is one of our vehicles, and it's, reg- like, it's uh, yeah. registered to Adolf. Oh, my gosh. I know. I can't believe he just like left the car running. What? Well, I mean, he who Adolf? No, uh, no, no, no. Adolf. It makes sense, but the but the creep who was um trying to kidnap him and ransom him, like, why just leave the car running? Move it off to the side. Nobody would know for hours and hours and hours. Well, maybe, but I he's gonna risk all like his fingerprints and stuff all over the car. At that Did point. they have fingerprinting back in the fifties? Yes. Oh, never mind then. Yeah. All right. This is is 60, 1960. Sorry. Thank you. I mean, I think accurate fingerprinting. uh, I think they had to do it. 
and I don't know how it's done now. Like I'm sure it's not as easy as we we think, like in the movies. Yeah, that is true. It's like that is you know true. they look for different, like several different points, and I don't know if they had to do it by like by sight, just like like actually looking at it from the human oh, eye. If that makes yeah, sense, yeah, probably, yeah, um, probably. So, but but the answer is yes because later on they do pull prints from something else and are able to compare it. So. Adolph's brothers, Bill and Joe, head out to the bridge to meet with the state police. Once they're there, they began a search of the area that turned up Adolph's cap that he wore that earlier that day, his glasses, and several blood stains around the bridge. Uh, about two days later, Mary, Adolph's wife, would receive a ransom note in the mail requesting half a million dollars in exchange for the safe release of Adolf. And he's still gonna ransom him. Oh, what a cad. Well, okay, so from what I understand, and not to like side with Corbett by any means, I believe, I know he dropped the ransom in the mail and I think it was before he actually made his way to kidnap Adolf. Oh. So like, I don't think he anticipated that everything would just go south. But how awful okay. for the family, because they, they get this and they're like, oh my God, like Adolf's been kidnapped, but they at least have some sort of hope that if they give this monster the money, they're gonna get him back alive. Yeah, and they shouldn't have hope, Oh, Yeah, Ugh. that part, I was so angry. I mean, I'm angry at the whole thing. It's horrible, but I'm just like, oh God, like. Yeah, that's bad. That's really, that's really ugly. That's, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. And Can you the, imagine the rage the family felt after yeah. it was all finished? Oh. Okay, continue. Yeah. Okay, so six months would go by with no word and really no movement. Um, six months? Yes, because they never, so the, the ransom note was sent, but because Adolf was, was killed, I don't think, I don't believe Corbett ever actually um, followed through with anything on, because I, and I meant to, I'm sorry, I was going to read the ransom note to you, but I don't have it in my notes. Actually, oh, here, no, let me, let me go grab the book really quick. Stand by. Okay. okay. So the ransom note reads. Mrs. Coors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperate. He lives. Ransom, $200,000 in tens and $300,000 in twenties. There will be no negotiating. Bills, used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warning. We will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions. Place money in this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post Section 63. Sign Ad King Ranch Fort Lupton. Wait at NA 9 4455 for instructions after ad appears. 
deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this, Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. So that's a lot of work. I can't even imagine how much work it would be to get that much money. Yeah, I don't know. Sequential bills. I don't even know. Would you even do? You'd have to tell the bank. You'd have to tell the bank. You'd have to tell the bank. Be like, look, I want non-sequential bills, please. And they'd be like, oh, this is clearly for something nefarious. And you'd be like, that is correct. Well, you're going to work. I mean, the FBI is going to help you get, I mean... Well, yeah, he said if you call the FBI, he's going to die. Goodness, I know. (laughs) Well, but, like, okay. (laughs) Oh, I'm so sorry. Atlas is very upset by this. He's very upset, yes. Good grief. Well, but, yeah. Yes. Well, even if you didn't call the FBI, like you would work with your banker or your bank and be like, hey, you know, we have a family member who's been kid. Like we need this money. Like you're going to tell them what it's You'd for. have to. I would think. I mean, it's your money. You'd have to. You'd have to tell the bank. So, the bank is yeah. going to tell the cops. Like there's no way. Yeah. I, uh, so, and well, the other thing I think um, I read in the book, I think they take out the ad. Think again, thinking that he's still alive. So they go through the motions, right? All of this, and it just just for nothing. Oh, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Ugh. And then, okay, so I said six months go by with, I and mean, the the police are are trying. They they are working the case and trying to to do stuff. But like six <laughs> months go by, and like knows no word from Corbett. There's like no nothing. Then on September 11th, 1960, a hiker named Edward Green was out near a private dump and stumbled upon a pair of discarded pants. In the pocket, he found a penknife bearing Adolph's initials. And four days later, a shirt belonging to Adolph and his remains would be recovered. Six months later, they find... Yeah. (sighs) Six months later his poor family i know i yeah i can't i cannot even imagine so i do want to talk a little bit about joseph corbett jr because i feel like we need to to better understand maybe why he did what he did maybe i don't know he was born on october 25th 1928 in seattle washington to joseph and marion corbett and according to a neighbor who lived on the same street as the Corbett, or as uh, I'm sorry, as um, Joseph's parents, said that Corbett Jr. was a good kid, never really getting into any mischief that she recalled. Though later in life, young Corbett would recall his mother being quote unquote strange, and his father being a selfish alcoholic who was addicted to gambling. 
but his father was really a smart man and a good employee. Like he was described as a a model citizen. So I don't know what Corbett's deal was. Um, but of course, every story has two sides. So mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, so Corbett finished high school and he attended the University of Washington, where apparently he did very well. But tragically, Corbett's mother would die on June 7th, 1949, after she fell from a kitchen balcony onto an iron well grate. Oh. And... No one saw her fall, but Corbett did find her lying on the well cover, and she died five days later in a Seattle hospital. Corbett was naturally devastated and just continued to withdraw from society, and he never returned to college. He would later move to San Francisco, where, where he withdrew even more and just became, like, really reclusive but did work odd jobs. So like he was, he was out in society, just would stick to himself for the most part. And then on December or in, I'm sorry, in December, 1950, Corbett would murder a young Sergeant named Alan Reed. And Reed's body was found in Marin County, California with two gunshot wounds to the head. Corbett would deny having killed anyone and his attorney would basically argue self-defense. Ironically, Corbett was arrested because his father was worried about him and called the police to do a welfare check at his apartment. And then when the police arrived, they found his bags packed and his landlady told police she had seen him driving a car a few days prior and it happened to be the stolen murder car filled with blood from the crime scene. Hmm. Because I guess Corbett had ditched the car after the murder had taken place. And so Corbett claimed he had picked Reed up as a hitchhiker and an argument took place. And then Reed moved to take Corbett's gun and Corbett had no choice but to shoot him. All of this was soon proven to be lies. You see Reed's wallet and watch were missing. And Corbett changed his story several times after learning, like, what the police uncovered. Oh, or they'd question him, and he would, like, learn, like, oh, this happened. Oh, well, no, it was self-defense. Oh, my gosh. But, so, yeah. They also found Corbett's blood-sprayed hat in his apartment, which is what prompted him to change his story to self-defense, I think. Um, it was also difficult to prove self-defense since the bullet holes were in the back of each ear of Mr. Reed. So that bullet like, holes. So he shot him more than one shooting somebody like execution style. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was two. So like why? And if I'm sorry, if you're coming, you got to be coming at me for self-defense. If you're running away, I, I'm probably not going to shoot you because the threat is not there anymore. Well, it depends on what they were threatening. But yeah, this is true. But still, it doesn't look good. Oh, yeah, that doesn't look and good. Corbett that makes you offered... wonder if he actually killed his yeah. mother. Or at least it makes so me that wonder comes if up. he actually killed him. Oh, my God. Okay. That comes up later. Like, okay. briefly. It's not okay. really central to the story, but. No, but. 
because people seem to keep dying around him, which is suspicious. Maybe. So Corbett was offered and accepted a plea deal from the prosecutors where he would plead guilty to second degree murder in exchange for a five to life sentence that was later fixed to 10 years in Chino, California. And during this time, Corbett was evaluated by two psychiatrists. And he also told one of the officers before going to prison, quote, it's only natural for children to have a desire to kill their parents. And from time to time, I've had that desire, but I did not kill my mother. End quote. Wait, who said that? The psychiatrist or he told the psychiatrist that? Okay, so Corbett told one of the arresting officers before he went to prison that. It's only natural for children to want to kill their parents? Yeah, that is what he said, according um, to the sources I found. Um, yeah, he totally killed his mom. 100% he pushed her. I remember, well, I don't know if he pushed her, but I remember reading somewhere in the book, I believe, that he kind of blamed himself because he never he never fixed the railing of the balcony she was on. So, like, he kind of blamed himself. Ah. But he never admitted to, like, intentionally killing her. Okay. So, mm. I don't know. Maybe he did. Or know. maybe he saw her fall and just kind of, like, stood there in shock and didn't run down to immediately help her. Well, I don't, and I, it wasn't clear if he was at school when this happened. Like, ah. I don't know if he was home. I think he may have just, like, come across um, her. Yeah. Ugh. And the psychiatrist said he was, to, he was um, a schizoid and a narcissist. Oh. And my dog is so mad. I don't know what he's barking at. He's very mad. He's like, this guy is a bad guy. Killed his mom. I know, maybe I can. Killed that other guy, that poor hitchhiker. Corbett would eventually escape prison on August 1st, 1955. Civilian clothes were hidden for him in the prison laundry room, and he was able to change clothes and basically walk out of the prison undetected. What? He Wow. <laughs> So in the book, it was described that he basically like hid his, I think hid his shoes and like was able to get into the laundry room, change clothes and like hug the wall to, to avoid detection. And then I don't think Chino had like the big like barbed wire fences. It was a minimum security prison. Oh and gosh. so he was able to like throw a blanket over whatever fencing was there and just like crawl, crawl over oh and gosh. like walk away. And that's for five insane. years, what? No, go ahead. I was just saying that's insane. You just yeah. walked right on out. Pretty Bye. much. And then for five years, he had evaded any sort of detection. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Not good, but impressive. And so going back to the Adolf Coors murder slash kidnapping, there really wasn't a lot to go off early on, but the FBI was able to talk to a witness 
that revealed they had seen a yellow 1951 Mercury on Turkey Creek Bridge around the time of Adolf's, wow, Adolf's disappearance with the letters A-T and number 62, somewhere in the license plate combination. But, like, amazingly enough, that was enough to narrow it down to only four Mercury automobiles in the Denver wow. area that had been assigned a license plate with that prefix. Wow. And guess what? One of those was registered to Corbett, who was using the alias Walter Osborne. And a car matching the description was found torched in a dump in Atlantic City. And that's in New Jersey. And by this time, Corbett, a.k.a. Walter, had moved out of his Denver apartment the day after the kidnapping or the kidnapping attempt and made his way to Canada. And the FBI dusted for prints, like I had mentioned. Um, so basically, they were able to, um, they tracked the registration, figured out where he lived. So they went to his apartment and dusted for prints and were able to come up with a single print on a paint can lid. And they wow. were then able to painstakingly compare it to both driver license records and criminal records. And in less than a month, they found a match. And it was Corbett. Wow. And by now, Corbett was living in Toronto. And since the FBI were very certain Corbett was their guy, his name and face were all over every newspaper. So he quickly realized he needed to leave Toronto and he had signed his apartment agreement using his alias. So it was only a matter of time before he's going to get caught. Mm -hmm. So he makes his way to Vancouver, some like 4,000 miles away. And, this, and so Toronto is near New York State in the U.S. And Vancouver is clear west near Washington State. Oh, okay. So he, yeah, he booked it. <clears throat> Now, due to international obsession with this case, including a picture of Corbett in an issue of Reader's Digest, which was super, I guess, popular back then, Corbett is eventually going to get caught, like I mentioned. Of course. And so let me tell you what happens. So on October 29th, 1960, the FBI briefed the Vancouver police stating they are looking for an American driving a 1960 red Pontiac convertible with Canadian plates. One of the constables, Jack Marshall, immediately heads over to a nearby apartment complex following the briefing where he's fairly certain he's seen this very car or one similar. He enters the lobby and introduces himself to the landlady asking her if she had a tenant by the name of Joseph Corbett or Walter Osborne. She says no, but as soon as she, I'm sorry, as soon as the officer shows her a picture of Corbett, she recognizes him. Of course. And he's, yeah, at this point, he's going by the alias Thomas Wainwright. And the landlady disclosed that she was helping him rent a typewriter that was being oh. delivered that day. And that was basically their in. 
So Jack Marshall and several agents make their way to Corbett's apartment. Marshall knocks and Corbett replies asking who's there before Marshall could respond with his rehearsed reply of I'm here to deliver your typewriter. Corbett opened the door. The agents rush in, like almost tackling him, and he surrendered without incident, basically saying something like, um, I'm your man and I'm not armed. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so Corbett is arrested and taken before a Vancouver police magistrate. He's charged in Canada with possession of an unregistered firearm. And this was a legal maneuver to kind of like hold Corbett for extradition to the United States. Now, Corbett already has an arrest warrant for murder in the U.S., but because of the charges he faces in Canada, he is entitled to an extradition hearing, which can take time to prepare, blah, blah, bureaucracy. And then Canada might not extradite him if there's a chance of the death penalty in the States. But why? That's I honestly, that's what the book said. Oh, maybe. So they don't want to extradite somebody back to their home country if they think they're going to be killed in their home country. Maybe. Oh, okay. I can kind of see the um, humanitarian side going on with that but if he's a murderer justice Mm, well yes but interestingly enough Corbett waives his right for a hearing and tells the judge he wants them to take him right away back to the US oh Oh, okay all right sure yeah Yeah, I don't know okay your funeral, bro. Well, we'll we'll get there too. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. So on November 15, 1960, Joseph Corbett is arraigned in a Colorado courthouse. He's charged with murder in the first degree and pleads not guilty. And the murder trial began on March 13, 1961. So as there were no witnesses prosecutors built their case against Corbett through mounds of circumstantial and forensic evidence. And in 1960s Colorado, for someone convicted of murder to be sentenced to death, one of two conditions had to be met. There had to be an eyewitness to the the crime or a confession to the crime. Mm. So since there were no eyewitnesses, Corbin has to confess in order for a jury to consider the death penalty. And of course, Corbett's not about to confess. I mean, yeah, really. No. Yeah. And in reading um, The Death of an Heir, the book I told you about, Corbett, I, like, he seemed like he was kind of intimidated and bullied by the DA's office and the sheriff's department. And I'm pretty sure the judge found out and like seriously reprimands them. And I think later the sheriff's office would be investigated. I think, um, at least I have it in my notes here. So again, it's all in the book. It's very dramatic. I mean, I guess that's fair if the defendant is innocent, like, yeah, they shouldn't be cajoling or 
anything like that. And it's really hard to tell if somebody's innocent or guilty, which is the whole purpose of the court system to determine if somebody is guilty or innocent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, Corbett's coworkers would testify later that they overheard him talking about a plan that would earn him over a million dollars. The ransom note typeface was traced back to Corbett's typewriter. Well, I don't think they ever have actually found the typewriter, but they knew they were able to find out what kind of typewriter it was. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They were able to trace the paper that was matched to the ransom note back to that of like Corbett had purchased. And, but the biggest piece of evidence was the dirt found in the undercarriage of his yellow mercury. Investigators were able to trace the car's path by, um, they had found like a rare pink and like uh, mineral and other granite minerals that are on, like only found in the area where, where Adolf's body was discovered. Wow. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. That is really interesting. And on March 29th, 1961, Joseph Corbett Jr. was sentenced to life in prison. And on May 23rd, he was transported to the Colorado State Pen in Canyon City. And this is another old prison built in 1871. I think they expanded it in the 1930s. Um, but Corbett would soon get out. Again? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. This is the first time. Sorry. No, this is the second time that he's in prison. This is the second time. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so he's going to get out because so Colorado changed the state law. I'm not sure at what point. But they, it's, they changed it to require a parole hearing after 10 years for those serving life sentences. And Corbett was a model prisoner, as they usually are. And he, he worked in the infirmary. So he was, was like saving people's like prisoners' lives and things like that. And also <laughs> just being on good behavior. So the parole board decided to release him in 1978, but was met with public outcry. Good. They're like, no, like this, he's a monster. He said, no, no. And it was revoked. So he did not get out. A year later though, the parole board approved the release, but (laughs) freaking Corbett violates his parole because he went back to Denver to close some bank accounts before going back to San Francisco. And people thought he was out for revenge and he Mm -hmm. was sent back to prison. Good. Third time's a charm though. He's paroled for the last time in 1980. Oh my gosh. And he spends the rest of his life driving a truck for the Salvation Army until he retired. And he ends up killing himself at the oh. age of 80 in hmm. August of 2009. I think he was diagnosed with cancer of some kind. And so that might have had something to do with it. 
but he lived and died just 10 miles from where he killed Adolf and always, always maintained his innocence. Hmm. I do think euthanasia should be legal. Oh my gosh, but, Emily. You know, I know. Sorry. Sorry, mm -hmm. just throwing that, that out can be, there. That, well, that can be a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. Wow, he maintained his innocence up until his death. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Which again, it's like, how, how, how? Yeah, you had three people die suspiciously around you. Like, either you have really bad luck or you're a murderer. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, there's so much circumstantial evidence, which, again, that's I, I know that that's not, you can't really do anything with that. I mean, you can, but a lot of times a jury is not going to do anything with it. Right. They're not going to take that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he, they found, they found the handcuffs, the leg irons, his, his hat was at the scene. Um, it just, it, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. There's too much, there's too much evidence. There's too much evidence. Yeah. So that is the, failed kidnapping and unfortunate murder of Adolf Coors the third. Wow. Poor. I still, his poor family. Oh, I know. I know. So, I mean, in addition to his, his brothers, his parents, his wife, his kids, cause they had four kids mm -hmm. and I believe, so I think Mary, his wife passed away. Um, several years, I think in the 1970s and their, their daughter died really young from lymphoma. I oh. Um, and I think, and I, I looked this up the other day. I'm pretty sure that the Coors brewery is still within the family. Oh, that's fantastic. Which I, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that's that's lovely. I, I like when I like when companies succeed and they remain in the family. I think that's I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they survived all through prohibition where wow. they they made uh, like they malted milk and porcelain and I think near beer also. Yeah. So they were able to sort and they, and the other thing I found out is that, or that I read in the research is that the, so, um, Adolf's dad, so Adolf Kors Jr. Mm -hmm. Didn't, he basically like gave them allowances. He didn't want them living these like lavish, ritzy lifestyles. Mm -hmm. He wanted them to stay humble and just kind of live, live within their, you know, like basic, basic lives. Yeah. Does not, not, yeah. Not become like rich, um, socialites that don't have to work for a living. Right. He well, and even they're, they're from this like amazing dynasty sort of, um, yeah. but not being flashy, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, that makes know, sense. They, they just, they tried to be a really simple, like quote unquote regular family right 
Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, that sucks so much. Poor guy. Yeah. I mean, if Corbett is innocent, I mean, that sucks a lot because his entire life was ruined. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like it even slightly, but poor Adolf. And yo, yeah. Well, yeah. And his children. Did his children go on to, to stay in the family business or um, mm, was I it really just his brothers and their families? I, uh, I didn't look that up. I want to say that his son, Adolf Kors IV, oh, wow. did, did stay within the business, but I'm honestly not sure. Okay. I have to look that up. God, that the wife, the kids, the family must have been so full of rage, especially once they found out that he died six months ago, even though they got the freaking um, uh, ransom note. Oh, God, I can't even. You and I have been so full of rage, and there's like, <laughs> it was an accident. So I can't even imagine if somebody had like attempted to kidnap a family member and then ended up killing them. I can't even imagine the deep-seated rage harbored within that family. The poor, unless, I mean, unless they're better than us and, or at least better than me and just forgive, forgave and forget. Maybe. Didn't well, harbor that like, rage. Yeah. And the not knowing. The Ugh. not knowing. The not knowing. Like where, where is my family member? Yeah. What do you even, and you'd be scared every day. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and I think I read too that there were, they received hoaxes, like people Ugh. calling and like pretending like, Hey, I'm give me basically, um, pretending to be like asking for false ransoms. Wow. I'm the, I'm, I'm the kidnapper. Give me the money. Right. I wouldn't yeah. even be surprised if people were like, oh, I'm, I'm Adolf. Bring me back into the family. Oh my God. Like they don't know what he looks like. Right. Oh, come on. Right. No. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Yeah. This, this one was not okay. Ugh. Wow. That sucks. That sucks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So. I guess on a happier, happier note, that's not the right, uh, you know. Yeah, give I mean. us a mocktail, Katie. Lighten, <laughs> lighten the mood. Clear the lighten air. The give us a mocktail. Okay. So I found a in, in, an instant pot recipe for homemade root beer. Very and apropos, Katie. <laughs> that is and on the nose, and I love it. I have not tried this yet, but it just sounds super simple. If you have an Instant Pot, you can also do this in a slow cooker, it looks like. So it is going to yield about um, 16 eight-ounce servings, and it takes about probably 15 minutes, looks like. Wow. So you're going to need about 20 pieces of sassafras root bark, which 
I don't Where know do you if even I can get I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I can find it at HEB or I'm going to have to get it off of Amazon. I don't know. You might have to go to someplace fancy like Whole Foods or Maybe. something. Maybe. Yeah. And who knows how much that's going to cost. A bajillion dollars. You'll oh have to God. mortgage your firstborn child. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. And I'm looking at the the um, text here. So the author says she found sassafras root bark on Amazon. Okay. So. I just like the word sassafras, to Me be too. honest. Me too. So, okay. So sassafras, four allspice berries, two whole cloves, one cinnamon stick, half a teaspoon anise seed, quarter teaspoon fine sea salt, four cups of water, one cup of swerve, confectioner's style sweetener. I, I'm going to say, and this is from a keto book, so you might be able to use whatever sweetener you want. Um, oh, okay. So I might play around with it. And then um, two quarts of sparkling water for serving. So you're basically making a root beer syrup. And then when you're ready to serve it, you pour about, um, let's see here. It's just to start with a one to two ratio of root beer syrup to sparkling water. So you pour in probably about a third of a cup of the syrup in your mug and then two thirds of sparkling water and then you stir it. And if you want more, add more, but, um, you start with rinsing the sassafras root and then you place the sassafras, the allspice berries, the cloves, the cinnamon, basically you put everything, but your sparkling water and the, um, it looks like the sweetener into your instant pot and you seal the lid press uh, manual and you set the timer for 10 minutes and once that's finished once it reaches the pressure and everything you turn the valve to vent to quick release so if you've used an instant pot before once you're once it beeps at you saying hey i'm done instead of waiting for a natural release you um you turn your little valve to um to release the pressure right away but you have to be careful since we're giving out this recipe. You have to be careful when you do yes. that. Like, yeah, don't burn your get ready to pull your hand out of the way because yeah. it will yeah. start spraying. Yeah, I've I've seen other people put like towels or something over it so it doesn't go everywhere. Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I put it. Um, I I turn my um stove top fan on. But I, I don't like to do the quick release. Yeah. It depends on what I'm cooking. Um, but yeah. I might have to try putting a towel over it because what I've gotten, I've actually got something in my Instant Pot right now. Um, and it the recipe that I'm following calls for doing a quick release after 20 minutes of a slow release. So Okay. Yeah. So we'll see. And okay, so once you've done your quick release, you want to pour the mixture through a fine mesh strainer into a medium-sized bowl. And I would say like a strainer or some cheesecloth, basically something that's going to catch all of your spices that are in there. And then you want to add in your sweetener to your mixture, stir, and allow it to cool. And then you want to store your root beer syrup um, in the fridge until it's ready to drink. 
So make sure it cools completely before you put it in the fridge. And then, as I mentioned, when you're ready, you fill your glass with ice cubes, and then you fill your add about a third of a cup of the syrup, and then top with your sparkling water. And if you want it stronger, add more syrup. If it's too strong, add more sparkling water. And um, like I mentioned too, you can make this in a slow cooker. So basically it's the same process um, just in a slow cooker. And instead of 10 minutes, you cover and cook on high for two hours. Oh yeah, no, let's do the Instant Pot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And oh, and you can, you can put it um, in the freezer for up to two months. Oh, wow. Which I guess maybe you could like put it in ice cube molds or something like that. Oh my gosh, that'd be perfect. That'd be perfect. Man, if I was a fan of root beer, that would be great. I would totally make that. I freaking love root beer, but I have a love-hate relationship with like that anise licorice taste. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, which is probably the reason why I am not a fan of root beer. I don't like anise. Oh, I yeah, because I remember when you and I went to go see, um, mm -hmm. was it Bullet Train? Yes! yes. Thank they, you. I've been yeah. wondering what that movie was. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we went to go see yes. Bullet Train, um, I guess several months ago. And yeah. the theater brews their own root beer. And so, of course, I'm like, yes, please. I need a glass. Yeah. And I told Emily, I was like, you should get one. She's like, I don't like root beer. I'm like, but nope. this one's good. And no. she's like, no. <laughs> I did try it. I, oh, you did? I, yeah, I tried a sip of yours, remember? Oh, yes. Okay. Because I was like, like, it's not super heavy with the licorice <laughs> flavor. And you just, you didn't agree with me. I did not. No. <laughs> no. So I, so I've told y'all before, I'm super duper picky, but I will try everything. Even if it's something that I know I don't like, I'll try it again because I used to absolutely despise mustard. And now I like eat, can eat mustard straight out of the bottle. I love mustard. So I'll try everything, but it doesn't make it not, doesn't make it not gross. Yeah. No. So I tried it. It was not good. I didn't like it. Katie loved it though. So yeah, if you're a Ruth fan. Yeah. And I, now I can't even remember the name of the theater. Um, it was one of those theaters where they, where they serve you uh, food while you're watching the theater. Some, one of those movie grills yeah, in San Antonio. It's, it's not, um, it is not Alamo draft house. It's a different one. No. Yeah. No, we, we went to a different one. But yeah, if you're in San Antonio, it's the one, it's on the west side of town, out just outside of 1604 near Petranco. But other than that, I, I cannot remember the name of it. I want to say it's a Santicos, but I'm probably wrong. Well, here, let me look it up really quick. <laughs> we have we have cell phones for a reason. We do. We do. But uh but yeah, uh, you know, it's it's really irritating because I say I hate star anise, but I also love chai tea and chai tea has star anise. But I'm also very picky. I'm also very picky about my chai tea and it's got to have just a small amount, very, very tiny, minute amount of anise. Okay. Like, like, like very faint, very minute. Gotcha. Okay. 
Um, okay, so the place we went is called Flicks Brew House. Oh, there you go. F F L I X Flicks. So they've got good root beer, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so that is all I've got. And again, if you like this episode, please rate and review. If there's anything we can do better, like my echoey mic, I don't know what is happening. So hopefully <laughs> there's not too much echo in this episode. If there is, I'm going to do my best to edit that out if I can. If not, we will just work to get better. Yes, always. Always trying to get better. Yeah. So in the meantime, help us reach that 300 follow mark so we can have our giveaway and then hopefully we can do more giveaways if this one is a success. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all I've got. And we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Make good choices. Make good choices. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.